We'll now continue with reading from our Bible. Um, it's on your, uh, your handout here, but also if you have a Bible or on your Bible app, please turn to Matthew 22, and we'll be reading verses 34 to 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kathy, for reading for us. And just a reminder to all of you, uh, we do, um, if we have opportunity at the end of the, the message, we take a few minutes to take uh, questions. If you have any questions, perhaps, uh, that pop up in your mind, uh, during the, the sermon, uh, you can write them down, remember them, uh, you can text me those questions. I do have my phone here and my number's in the bulletin, or you can raise your hand um, as we go along. You'll see also that there is a, an outline on the very back of the bulletin uh, that'll serve, hopefully, as a roadmap for me and you so that we all know where we're going as we think about this uh, subject together. The vision of Grace Valley Church is to see all of Dundas impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ for the glory of God and for the good of the community. That's our vision. That's why Grace Valley Church was founded, to see all of Dundas impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ for the glory of God and for the good of the community. Now, that's not a worldwide vision, obviously. It's a, a pretty localized vision, but it's pretty big. Anyway, there's 25,000 residents in this uh, town, in this city. And so uh, if we want to see this entire city and all the people in this city impacted by the gospel in some way, that's a pretty big vision. Uh, I was actually looking at vision statements uh, uh, recently, probably when I was supposed to be working um, but anyhow, I, I came across one that I thought, man, if I had known that one before I planted Grace Valley, maybe I would have used that one because it's really good. So listen to this. Um, this is a vision state statement of a group of churches out in uh, Washington State. Uh, to see every man, woman, and child have a daily encounter with Jesus Christ, either through words spoken or deeds done through His people. That's basically the same idea. We're trying to, as a church community, uh, create a, a base of operations for the kingdom of God from which every man, woman, and child in this community would have an encounter with Jesus Christ. And we've been trying to do that in a whole bunch of, of different ways. I don't know if you know this, but right now, what's happening right now is actually a very significant way that we have been trying to accomplish this vision. Worship, Sunday worship, 
where a group of people who confessed that Jesus Christ, a man who lived many centuries ago, was actually the Son of God who came into this world to live the life that we should have lived and die the death that we should have died, and then He rose again from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of His heavenly Father in a realm that we cannot see with our physical eyes, but He is now reigning and ruling over this universe. When, when a group of people get together and they, they believe that together and they confess that together and they celebrate that together, that's actually part of the vision of seeing all of Dundas impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've done it through other things as well. We have, we have programs and ministries that we are hoping are introducing people to Jesus and His love. We, we ran Grief Share. We have Hope for Waiting Hearts, which meets monthly. We did a tax preparation clinic. We're involved in community dinners along with other churches in Dundas. We, we have pub talks occasionally. Next one's in July. Mark it on your calendar. I think it's July 20. It's a Thursday night. Come. It'll be Awesome. Um, we, what else do we do? We, we're involved with Stewards of Coots Paradise. We're in, involved with uh, Ellen Osler Home and hope to be involved with, with that more. There's even Thursday night baseball. And you're like, what? Thursday night baseball? Every Thursday night. If you can make it, 7.30, Dundas Driving Park, pick up baseball. You play scrub, you hang out, you get some exercise, and hopefully... Maybe you meet some people who live in town and you have an opportunity to invite them to play with you and you, you, and you have an opportunity to tell them who you are, a part of this, this church family in, 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 in their community. These are all ways of trying to realize that vision of people meeting Jesus and having an encounter with Him. But actually, none of those ways is actually the main way that people encounter Jesus Christ. It's not ultimately mainly through Sunday worship. It's not through programs and, and ministries that we run, we, we run. It's actually through you, God's people, followers of Jesus Christ, the church, living missionally in your community and in your neighborhood. Um, all theologians will agree on this, and it's very rare that all theologians agree on anything. So take note, the way that the church grew as recorded in the New Testament and what you can find out in, in church history as you read the church fathers, etc., the way that God brought the gospel to the nations and churches actually grew was actually through the ministry of regular people who loved Jesus, who had an encounter with Him themselves, and then introduced their friends and neighbors to Him. So, for example, in, in John chapter 20, when Jesus is speaking to His disciples, He says this in verse 20 and 21. He says, um, na, 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 na. Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. 
So in those verses, Jesus describes how, how the purpose of him coming into the world was so that humanity would have an encounter with Jesus Christ, so that human beings would know who God really is and be able to have an actual living, personal relationship with their creator through him, through Jesus. That's why the Father sent him. And then he said, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. I'm, and he wasn't just talking about the disciples. He wasn't just talking about these 12 guys that he had uh, hanging out with him for the last three years. He was talking about all of those who were his followers and he said that through the holy spirit through the second per, or sorry third person of the trinity living in believers as they engage their neighbors and their co-workers and their friends all that kind of stuff they would have an encounter with god as well it's through the witness of people like you and me in our monday to saturday workaday lives in our neighborhoods, with our coworkers, having what you could call lifestyle or friendship or, or, or relational evangelism, that the church grows. That's how Christianity spreads. It, it's a little bit humbling for someone like me who's, you know, a professional, professional, am I a professional Christian? <laughs> I get paid to be a Christian. You know what I mean. I'm a preacher, right? It's my job to share the gospel. And, and the, the reality is, is that throughout the New Testament, it isn't actually uh, just through me preaching here, but through the church preaching as it, as it lives in this world that God expands his kingdom. And, and some of you, I don't know if you're skeptical and you wonder if that's really true, just listen to these following verses. I figure I'd, I'd try to to, to pound this into you. This is uh, Matthew 5, verse 16. Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before men and women, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Philippians chapter 2, verse 15 says this, Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. And Paul, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, says this. Sorry, not Paul, Peter. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, says this. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. As Christians live in this world and in their neighborhoods as Christians, they proclaim the good news and the kingdom of God is advanced. Now, what I would like us to do for the next few weeks is I want to just think a little bit about this. Uh, Unpack this a little bit, this, this concept. Um, I want to do that for three reasons. I want to, I, sorry, let me, what's the concept? The concept is Christians taking an interest and being meaningfully involved in the lives of their neighbors and in their neighborhoods. I want to unpack that and think about that for three reasons. One is, I believe that it is critical today in this context that if the church is going to actually have an influence in the Western world in which we live, we 
have to, have to, have to, have to start building meaningful relationships with the non-Christians around us in our lives. Historically, the church, because it was in what's called a Christendom context, meaning everybody lived in a kind of semi-quasi-Christian culture, so that even the non-Christians, you know, they were, they were, they were, they were still cultural Christians. They would identify as some form of Christian. I grew up Presbyterian, or I'm a Catholic, or I'm Anglican, or whatever. Uh, it was easy to sort of run programs, and, and people in the community who weren't necessarily part of your church, they might still come and participate in your programs because they were, they were churched to the degree that, that it was common and normal in their culture. That is no longer the case. Today, if you're a Christian here this morning, I'm not assuming everybody is, but if you're here a Christian this morning and you're, you're used to going church, what you need, going to church, what you need to understand is, is that for the average non-Christian who has never been to church, who didn't grow up in a Christian context, didn't grow up in a church context, when they drive by your church, whether it's in a half hour or at Knox Presbyterian or at a massive cathedral in downtown Hamilton, when they drive by the church, it is as as weird, as, as mysterious to them as it is for you to drive by, let's say, a Masonic Lodge or a Masonic Temple and wonder to yourself, what goes on in there? I've never been in there. I wonder what they do in there. It's just as weird for them as it is for you. And it is critical in our post-Christian context that, that we not expect our programs and our ministries to be the touch point for the kingdom of God to grow. In fact, study after study after study shows that up to 90%, up to 90% of people encountering Jesus and joining the church did so because they were invited to meet Jesus and come to church by a Christian. They didn't just walk down the street one Sunday morning on their way to, to their typical Starbucks uh, uh, hangout and say, oh, look, there's a church there. I've never thought about walking into one before, but today I do feel like it. And they went and sat down and bam, they were converted. I mean, that's not how it works. Not anymore, anyway. So that's the first reason. The second reason is, is because, and this is for those of you particularly who may be guests or, or new to Grace Valley, uh, if you wonder, how does this church work? Why, how do, why does this church do church the way it does church? And you'll discover that we do, one of the things we do a lot of is we eat. We like to eat, and we like to eat together, and we like to eat together often. <laughs> why? Why is that such an important part of the church? Why is our, our engaged groups, which is our small group ministry, why is that such a cornerstone ministry of this church? Why do we do things like have picnics and, and, and have barbecues and these kinds of things? Why do we do those things? How come we don't have a lot of programs that meet in the middle of the week for you to plug into and hardcore Bible studies and youth programs and all that kind of stuff? Why are we doing this stuff? Why do we do it the way we do it? This is why. So it'll help you understand sort of the... Every church has its own sort of DNA and makeup. You'll, it'll help you understand the DNA and makeup of this church. And then the third reason is simply because it's summer. And summertime is a great place, a great time to capitalize on this very thing that we're going to be talking about. If you've never done what we're going to be talking about, summertime is the time to start. If you have been doing it, summertime is the time to really ramp it up. What am I talking about? You'll have to listen to find out. Okay, so those are the three reasons that we're going to talk about this. Uh, one more thing before we begin and before we, we dive into this text. 
if you're here this morning and maybe you're not a Christian and you're listening to all this, I could understand if you would be thinking to yourself, ah, I see what's going on here. This, he's going to talk about a strategy. He's going to talk about a strategy for Christians to lure people into their weird cult or whatever it is. You know, make friends with them, act like you like them, get them involved, and then become friends with them, and then boom, spring the church on them, and then boom, ask me, ask me for my money. I get it. I get that that's how it sounds right at the outset. I want to prove to you from this passage this morning that that's not what this is about, but you have to listen to the whole thing because it, it only makes sense at the end, all right? So hang in there, I ask, I plead, please. So here we go. We're going to look at basically two things. We're already through ver- chat, uh, point one and two, sorry, of the, of the outline. Uh, we're going to do two more points. We're going to look at two things. We're going to look at the mandate that Jesus puts forth in this passage and the motivation behind the mandate that Jesus puts forth in this passage. What are we called to do? What is the church called to do? Jesus says here in Uh, sorry, in verse 37, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then he gives the mandate that we're going to talk about this morning in verse 39. He says, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. What we are called to do is to love our neighbors as ourselves. And many of you are probably thinking, oh, yes, of course, that is what we're supposed to do. I I get that. That makes sense to me. And you don't even have to be a believer to believe that you should do that. I mean, the golden rule version of love your neighbor as yourself is basically do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And everybody thinks that that's a good idea, right? Well, let's think a little more deeply about what Jesus is actually getting at. First of all, who is he talking about? Who is my neighbor? It's a famous question. In fact, a lawyer came up to Jesus at one point and asked him that question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus told the story of of the Good Samaritan in order to answer that question. Is my neighbor my neighbor, like the person who lives right next door to me? Is my neighbor, you know, the people on my block? Uh, Is my neighbor my coworker? Is my neighbor the parents of the kids on my soccer team? Uh, Who's my neighbor? Is my neighbor my employee? And the answer is yes, all of them. But the focus of the passage is actually on your actual neighbor. What I'm saying is, is that yes, everyone is your neighbor, but certainly the person, the people who live near you and next door to you and on your block, they are most certainly your neighbors. So your neighbor is more than your next door neighbor, but it's certainly not less than your next door neighbor. In other words, if you are saying, well, yes, I'm neighbors with the people that I get along with on my kid's soccer team, or yes, I'm neighbors with the people at work who I get along with, but not the other people, and I'm not really neighbors with the people who live next door to me because I don't really know them or because they're old or because they're cranky or because I hardly ever see them or whatever. I'm not really neighbors with them because of that. Sorry, you're not really loving your neighbor. The neighbor is the one who's there right next door. And Jesus says, secondly, he says, we are called to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, a natural question we want, might want to ask is, do, do people really love themselves? And I don't want to get deep into the weeds here. We can talk about all kinds of psychology and stuff. But Jesus is not, not addressing sort of people's self-esteem issues. 
When he talks about loving your neighbor as yourself, he's talking about seeking what's best for you. Everybody, whether you are self-loathing or not, you do seek what is best for you. The reason you hate yourself if you're self-loathing is because you're not getting or achieving or experiencing the things that would make you love yourself. You're still preoccupied with yourself. You still want your own happiness. You're just not achieving it. You're just not succeeding in it. And the person you're blaming for it is you. Blaise Pascal, who is a very well-known philosopher in the 1600s, he, he said this, and it's right there on the front of your bulletin. He says, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. There will never, they will never take the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. What Pascal is basically saying is this. We are all concerned with our own well-being. And here, Jesus is saying, when he says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's saying you have to have the same concern for the well-being of your neighbor, the people next to you, as you have for yourself. You should be concerned about meeting the needs of your neighbors with the same force, with the same joy, with the same speed, with the same power as you do for yourself. You should be as happy for them meeting their needs as you would be happy about you meeting your own, which means you have to care about their lives. Look, what does it mean to be a good neighbor? Here's what we think it means to be a good neighbor. If you have a party, don't play your music too loud. When you see Bob drive into his driveway, wave and say, hey, Bob. And when he needs to mow his lawn and he doesn't have his own lawnmower, maybe let him borrow your lawnmower. Maybe. Be respectful, right? Like, clean up your recycling bins when the, the recycling truck goes by. Don't leave them out there for three days straight. It's annoying. Mow your lawn on time so that your stupid dandelion puffs aren't going onto your neighbor's lawn and he's getting mad at you. That's what it means to be a good neighbor. That is not even close to what Jesus says being a good neighbor is. With the flourishing of the people you live near as you are with yourself. To have their good, their well-being on your mind and on your heart in the same way that you have your own good and your own well-being on your heart. Whether they are a believer or not is frankly irrelevant. Your neighbors should think you're weird. Like, in a creepy Ned flanders sort of way, yeah. Like, why are you always trying to help me? Why do you care so much about me? Why, are you, why don't you have your own life to be concerned about? So, so weird that the only thing that can explain that weirdness to them is your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the second command. See, people say, oh yeah, I believe the golden rule. I love the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But we have no clue what Jesus really means when he says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. 
what would you have them do unto you? Not leave you alone. What would you have them do unto you? Not just be a respectful neighbor. You would have them do unto you. You would have them care about your needs as badly as they care about their own. That the flourishing of the good would be as important to them as the flourishing of the individual. This is what it means to take Jesus seriously. And not a single one of us here does it. I know I don't. I did not like writing this sermon. Because I don't care about other people enough. I barely care about my own family enough. And that's still questionable. How in the world can I actually care about Jenny or about Kitty or about Jeannie or about Darren or about Louie or about Russ? These are my neighbors. How can I even care about them to that kind of degree? How could, why, who can love somebody like that? And yet, here is what Jesus says. Love your neighbor as yourself in the same manner, to the same degree as you are concerned about yourself. And I can tell you, friends, I'm very concerned about myself. In a real way, Jesus says, you have to find your happiness and your joy in the happiness and joy of the people around you. That's the mandate, and nothing short of that. Anybody who says, listen, if you're here this morning, I just, I gotta, let me check my time. Okay, I gotta say this for a second. Let's just put the sermon on pause for a minute. If you're here this morning and you think Christianity is just about following Jesus' good advice, you know, Jesus, ha he showed a good moral path for us to follow. That's what it means to be a Christian, to just follow Jesus and his good advice. Would you listen to the advice? It's impossible. His advice is so off the charts. His advice is so beyond reasonable, frankly. His, his advice is so past our reaching. It can't be good advice. If you're listening to the advice, you should be crushed by it. You should think if that's what Christianity is, I want nothing to do with it. Because it's soul destroying. Jesus setting this bar saying, I have to care about my neighbors as much as I care about myself. I have to be willing to go out of my way and, and even potentially impoverish myself for the sake of the success of my neighbor. That is insanity. Nobody thinks that way. Nobody behaves that way. And if you think that that's what Christianity is about, you should run, run for the hills. Because it is impossible and it is soul crushing. If any one of us here just is listening to Jesus say, love your neighbor as yourself and says, yes and amen and I'm going to go do that rah, rah, me. You haven't heard what he said. What he's telling you is the impossible. You cannot do it. And yet, that's the bar he sets. That's the command he gives. What on earth is up with that? How is that even possible? Okay, back to it. Clunk. Point two. The motivation behind that mandate. Why? Why would anybody do that? I mean, you're busy, right? Busy. We're all so busy. And you've got your own problems, right? I got my problems. You got your problems. How in the world can I also deal with my neighbor's problems? Where, where do you get the bandwidth in your heart, in your head, 
in your pocketbook, in your schedule to actually do what Jesus is calling us to do this morning? Well, we get a clue if we read carefully when Jesus says the second is like it. Verse 39 again, the second is like it. Jesus says that the second command is like the first command. And what he means by like is, is he means it's matching. It matches the first command. They go together. They are complementary. They fit one another. That's, the, that's the, the, the nuance of the original word that he uses there. To love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind means to love him with our whole being. It's not like three areas that you're supposed to go, okay, do I love God with my heart? Oops. Do I love God with my soul, wherever that is? And do I love God with my mind? Okay, yeah, I'm loving him with all three of those things. That's not what he's getting at. He's using this language to get at the idea that every aspect of who you are, every, every inch of who you are, every part of your being is supposed to be devoted and committed completely and entirely to him above all other things. And, and that matches the, uh, the command to love your neighbor as yourself. As yourself. Well, how does that work? Think about it. What on earth could make you love God like that? What on earth could make you be so committed to God that every part of who you are you want to offer to Him in service? You want to hold nothing back. You want to give Him your hopes and dreams, your plans, your, your everything. You want to tell Him, do with me what you will. Take my house, take my money, take my job, take my children if you've got them, take my boyfriend or girlfriend, take it all and use all of them for your glory. I give them all to you. They're not mine, they're yours. What on earth would make a person want to do that? It's realizing that the very thing that He calls you to do when He says, love your neighbor as yourself, is the very thing that he did for you first. What's the gospel? What's the basic gospel message in the Bible? It's that God sought our good. It's that Jesus Christ, his son, who came into this world, he set aside his own glory, his own riches, his own majesty. He lived as a nomad and as a nobody. He impoverished, uh, impoverished himself for our good. Jesus loved his neighbor to the very end and to the very end of his life. There's a place in Hebrews where it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Jesus went to the cross and he died in our place. He took God's wrath for our sin. He took it all on his shoulders. He was treated as though he was the rebel against God when really it was you and I who were the rebel against God. He took all that. Why? For the joy set before him. You see, he found his happiness. He found his joy in our happiness and in our joy. Because what he has done has enabled us to, to know that God himself doesn't judge us for our sin, but he embraces us as his children. He rescues us and he loves us beyond our wildest dreams. Now, when that sinks into you, when you see that, then you can love your neighbor as yourself. John says in, in his epistle, he said, we love God because he first loved 
us. You see, when you've been unconditionally loved like that by God, expecting, ex- expecting his condemnation but be given his favor, when you remember that, when, then, then, then you can love others without expecting something in return. Remember at the very beginning I said to those of you who thought that this was a strategy? That I can understand that you would think that, but hold on because I'm going to explain why it's not. We're at that point right now. See, a cynic would say, oh, you Christians, you're just, you know, everybody's a project to you, right? You're just trying to get them, become friends with them to get them into the church. But now you see that that's not true. A Christian doesn't love people in order to convert them. A Christian loves people because they've been converted. See, it's not impossible for you to actually care about the well-being of your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. Because your heart is transformed by the gospel. You see that you were were the, the, the unlovable neighbor to end all unlovable neighbors. And God still pursued you and, and, and emptied himself for you to make you his own. And that means that because your heart has been transformed by his love, you just, you just want to be like that with others. You'll inevitably love your neighbor if you love God. Or if you're obeying the first command, which if you obey it doesn't feel like a burden, but but feels like a release and a joy, you will inevitably obey the second command. And it won't feel like a burden either. In fact, you will take great joy and great pleasure in just sharing the love of Jesus with your neighbor, and maybe at some point when they say, man, you're weird, why do you do that? You can say the name of Jesus too. Two quick applications and then we're done. Well, one, one. okay, how do we do this? Um, first off, the church picnic, we put a lot of we put a lot of emphasis on the church picnic. If there are neighbors of yours that you know that are perhaps lonely, uh, perhaps a little bit isolated, or just they're friends of yours and you think, hey, I think that they would have a lot of fun, invite them to the per- picnic. Take them along. It will be a low-key thing. We won't hand out a tract and say, believe in Jesus. We'll just be friends and hang out and have a good time. Come to the picnic. And second of all, remember I said it's summer? Summer is the time to get outside in your backyard. Okay? Have a backyard barbecue. We put it out to all the engage groups. I, I want to just lay it out for you right here. Here's the challenge. Every engage group have one backyard barbecue with a neighborhood this summer. You pick who's going to host, everybody else comes so that if nobody in the neighborhood actually shows up, you won't feel like a loser and you'll still have somebody to cook burgers for. And if somebody does show up and, and, and you don't really know them that well, it won't be weird. Have one. Start with one. Discover how much you love one. We, we held one last year and I was just talking to my neighbor who said, you know, man, it was so great that barbecue you had last year. We just felt like we were connecting with people again. I said, don't worry, we're going to do it again. We'll connect one more time. These are practical, simple ways. And, and, and I'll just say in closing very quickly, you, you have no idea, friends, how 
Those of you who are in community and have friends and have church friends and stuff like that, you have no idea how many people don't. The Britain, okay, Britain, this is a country. They recently appointed a minister of loneliness to deal with the epidemic of loneliness and depression that comes with it, loneliness and isolation in, in, uh, in communities in Britain. And those of you, if you are brave enough to tell that story, those of you who maybe are on your own because you've lost a loved one, you lost your spouse and you're on your own, just be brave enough to share with people in your life how painful it is to eat alone every day. And you have neighbors who are eating alone every day. We all do. And for you to be able to bring just a little bit of breath of sunshine into their lives, you have no idea what that means. And just be yourself. Just be yourself as your family. Okay? We've had people over and our family acts very much like itself and I'm ashamed sometimes. <laughs> Not of me, my kids, of me. No, maybe all of us. I'm just embarrassed. Like, we just act ourselves. And we say, I say, oh, I'm so sorry. And they say, you know what? I love it because it's life. It's life. Even if I'm just listening to you all bicker, <laughs> it's better than listening to nothing. Very practical application. I got to lay that challenge before you. I, I think it will change you and it could change your neighbor's lives. Let's pray. Father, teach us to, in small ways at least, love our neighbor as ourselves. God, what a challenge you lay before us. It is impossible for us to achieve, but by your strength, by your spirit, by your power, we can at least make steps towards it. For the sake of your glory, for the sake of your kingdom, do this, we pray, for the sake of your Son, who has been the perfect neighbor to us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.